Lord, we want to open your word and experience you. We want to see your glory. So, Lord, open the eyes of our heart. So this is not just information in our head, but we can know you better. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you know what an oxymoron is? Oxymoron is the pairing of two literary terms or two words that are apparently contradictory. Okay, so the classic is jumbo shrimp, right? Um, Genuine imitation leather. Well, if it's imitation, it's not genuine. Well, so uh, you Mac users, Microsoft works. (laughs) 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 You're like, no, it doesn't, right? Um, What's the deal with the young people with literally... Literally this, literally, I literally died. Well, welcome back, right? I don't think you, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? Awfully good. Historical fiction. So you get the idea. It's, it's words that seem to be opposite paired together to describe the same thing. Now, um, in the book of Revelation, John is caught up into the throne room of heaven And there are multitudes of angels surrounding the throne of God. And he has a vision of Christ on the throne. And um, there's there's a scroll, a rolled up scroll with several seals. And nobody can be found to open the scroll. And this reveals the destiny of humanity and of God's people. And John begins to weep. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this is referring to Jesus. And um, one of the things we did in, uh, in Ireland is I taught, again, through the book of Genesis. And Genesis ends with the second to last chapter in Genesis 49 where Jacob is blessing his 12 children. And the blessings are not just, may you live well and prosper, but they're prophecies. And he comes to not his first, not his second, not his third, but his fourth son, Judah. And he basically says, a line of kings is going to come from you until the scepter is given to the one to whom it really belongs. And, and even in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints said, the king must come, the Messiah must come from the tribe of Judah. Well, one of the things that, that Jacob talks about with this coming king is that Judah is like a crouching lion. So, John is saying this is fulfilled in Jesus, the, the King of Kings, the Lion. Okay? And the, uh, the root of David, now everybody knew that the Messiah had to be the fruit from David's line, but what John is doing here is he's saying Jesus is also the root. He is the source from which David comes, and he is the son of David. So there's lots going on here uh, with metaphors. He has conquered. 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, if you just were to read that, you would say Christ is a conquering lion. He's roaring. He's ripped apart the enemy. He has earned his authority with power uh, as a lion. He has conquered. And then John looks, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, so now he looks where the lion was, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So now Jesus is a lamb. Now you go, now that's an oxymoron, a conquering lion, and now he's a little lamb. And not just, I mean, that's a contrast enough between a lion and a lamb, but this lamb uh, looks as though it had been slain. This lamb was dead, and apparently it's standing now, so it's this gentle sacrificial lamb. Um, Now, here's something weird. It's got seven horns and seven eyes. Okay? And we know all the numbers in Revelation are to be taken literally, right? No. Um, That's symbolic for all authority. The horns represent uh, authority. Seven equals the fullness of authority. authority. The eyes, omniscience. So even the lamb who had been slain, who is now standing, is all-powerful, and he's a lion, and he's a lamb um, in the same person. These are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So how can Jesus be the conquering lion and a conquered, slain lamb? Now, we know that this all points to the cross where the glorious, omniscient God of creation humbles himself and submits to being slain as a helpless lamb. Why? To satisfy his lionly justice so he could pour out lamb-like love and forgiveness to rebels like you and me. Now, um, when we were... In Ireland, we did a lot of ministry and a lot of teaching, but in uh, my spare time, I read a book by, have I mentioned this guy, a fellow named John Piper? It's his latest book. It's called A Peculiar Glory. Okay, It's a book arguing that while the Bible's claim to be the Word of God can be defended with apologetics. There are apologetical arguments, you know, the arguments about there's more manuscripts to document the New Testament than there are of any ancient book, and the gap between the original and the surviving manuscripts is the shortest. In fact, Elizabeth went to, in, in Dublin, there's a library, the Chester Beatty Library. It's full of manuscripts, and the oldest, most... Uh, It's not a complete New Testament, but the most pages in a New Testament, she took a picture of it right there, right? And it dates back to probably within 30, 40 years of 150, okay, 150 A.D. So there's all these arguments that you can use, the historical validity um, to, to argue that the Bible is the Word of God. But here's the point of Piper's 300 page book. Ultimately, the way the Bible convinces most people that it's true is that its message 
the gospel message about a God who is both lion and lamb, its message is such a unique, peculiar glory that it's self-authenticating. Okay? What does that mean? The God portrayed in the Bible is so peculiar, and it's what we've been longing for, even though the unbeliever rebels against the message, when those walls are broken down, he, the lion, lamb, God of the Bible, is what we've been longing for. And when we hear the message, when we see Christ, the lion, lamb, it's a self-authenticating message. In other words, it's obviously true. Rarely do people come to faith in Christ because of the manuscript evidence or because of the cosmological argument or the teleological argument or the ontological argument for the existence of God. I also I listened to a lot of debates. I knew I was going to be on an airplane for a while, so I downloaded debates between um, atheists and Christian apologists, and they use these arguments. Rarely do people place their faith in Christ and trust the inspiration of the Scripture due to apologetic arguments. Now, we need them. They're important. But Piper's point is that the, the Bible reveals itself to be the Word of God because the God in it is who we've been longing for. And when we unleash the lion lamb on people, they believe it. Okay? Let me, let me read... Uh, what Piper says. He says, the scriptures convince us by the revelation of a peculiar glory. In other words, the power of scripture to warrant well-grounded trust is not by generic glory, not as it were by merely dazzling, not by simply boggling the mind with supernatural otherness. Rather, what we see as inescapably divine is a peculiar glory. And at the center of this peculiar glory is the utterly unique glory of Jesus Christ. What has emerged, therefore, is that there is an essence or a center or a dominant peculiarity in the way God glorifies himself in Scripture. And here it comes. That dominant peculiarity is the revelation of God's majesty, that's his lionness, through meekness, that's his lambness. His whole argument is, now that we know God is majestic and meek, we can approach Him. We can worship Him. And that message rings through the entire Scripture, authenticating it as the Word of God. Okay? Another thing Piper brings up is, he's fascinated with Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was the preacher who lived in the 1700s. And... Um, Edwards, God used Edwards to bring about the Great Awakening in America. Yet, he was in this little congregational church. Uh, there were some, some bad sheep in the church who basically got him fired for no really good reason. So he found himself, who, who, he later became the, uh, the president of, was it Princeton or Harvard? Princeton. So they, they, some people did a political play and they kicked Jonathan Edwards out and so for a few years, he found himself in the woods 
He said, well, I guess God wants me here. And he started ministering to the Indians. And as he preached the gospel, they, uh, they started believing in Christ. And Edward said, now wait a minute. These people not only can barely speak the language, they would not even understand arguments about manuscripts and historical reliability and the complexity of apologetics, yet they're giving their life to Christ and they're willing to die for Christ. How do you explain that? And the answer is the same Jesus that maybe a more intellectual person encounters in the Scripture is the same Jesus that they encounter, and the Scriptures become self-authenticating and Christ becomes real, and they're willing to die for Christ just as much as uh, somebody who's a little more well-read is willing to die for Christ. So, whether you buy that whole argument or not, and you can read Piper on your own, by the way, it's free, download it online, if you can read the PDF on your reader, Um, it's an interesting read. What I want to do in the time that remains is for us to just glory in Jesus, the lion and the lamb. And I just want to look at a handful of scriptures where we see Jesus, and many of them in the same incident, he is both lion and lamb. Okay. Adam read about him coming into or mentioned him coming into Jerusalem on uh, Palm Sunday. Let me take you through some of the other things in that week. First thing he does, he gets off the donkey. And uh, if you've been to Jerusalem, the, the hill coming from the Mount of Olives goes down into the Kidron Valley, and then you go up in the, the walled city, and then there's the temple, and he went right into the temple, and here's what he did. And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now stop right there. In uh, John's gospel, the gospel starts with the cleansing of the temple Uh, And there's a debate, were there two separate events, or is John mixing things up chronologically? You know, you you can try and figure all that out. But in John's account, Jesus makes a whip, and he whips people out of the temple. Now, of course, many people go, well, he probably did that just to scare them. I don't have a problem with Jesus drawing blood. Some people go, that's not nice. He's the lion. You don't think that's nice. What do you think of when he's going to send people to hell for eternity? He's the lion. And he's roaring here. Don't you turn my father's house into a den of thieves. And he cleanses the temple. But then I've always been fascinated with the very next sentence. You would think people would go, this guy's nuts. Get away from him. But what happens? And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. He's still there, and he healed them. The most vulnerable, the weakest in Jerusalem, felt him to be approachable like a lamb. 
there's something about this man where he can take on the thieves, cleanse the temple, yet the vulnerable find him approachable. So now the Pharisees got to get in on this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. See, they're still uh, from Palm Sunday, which is that day. They're still praising him. He's the son of David, Hosanna. They were indignant. The religious leaders were indignant. And And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You, God, have prepared praise. And what he does here in one sentence is he simultaneously roars back at the hypocritical uh, religious leaders and protects the little children who are praising him. Both lion and lamb in the temple. Later on in the week, it's Thursday night, he has the Last Supper with his disciples, and he says, let's go to the garden and pray. And he's sweating, drops drops of blood. And he gets up, and it says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, in the pictures, we see like three guys with spears There could have been hundreds of soldiers, armed soldiers there. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And by the way, all the, the English translations insert the word he. It's not there. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. That's the name of God. I am. Okay. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. All the soldiers are overcome with power. And he could have walked away right there. The lion roars. But does he walk away? So he asks them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. So here, with lamb-like compassion, he protects the disciples, so they can flee. The lion and the lamb in one scene. Okay? Now, of course, Peter wants to save the day. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. And from John's Gospel, we know it was Peter. And struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So you got an ear laying on the ground. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish 
by the sword. And then I, I think this was probably the beginning of Peter's confusion. He's thinking, now we're going to take over. Jesus is the Messiah. I'm on his team. Let's go to town. Let's kill these guys. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And this is the start of Peter's confusion, which leads to his denials. And um, so, so that's going on here. But then Jesus says this, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send to me more than 12 legions of angels? So a legion is a term for a Roman army of 6,000 people. So 12 times 6,000 is 72,000. So Jesus, first of all, he says, you know, I am, and they all hit the ground. Then he says, Peter, put that, put that away. Don't, don't you think I could get an army of angelic warriors at the snap of my finger and they could take, take these guys with no trouble whatsoever? Put that sword away. So the lion roars, but how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And what about the guy with the ear on the ground? Luke twenty two fifty one. but Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Now this guy was coming to arrest him to have him crucified. Yet he has compassion on him, lamb-like compassion, and he touches his head and heals his ear. Strange question I've often wondered, does, was the ear on the ground no longer there, or was there an ear on the ground and one on the side? You know, think, think of that one. Okay, I would say when Jesus had the little kids, he he could play the game. Got your nose, but really take off their nose. <laughs> so now they arrest him and they bring him to the Sanhedrin, and he's on trial before the Sanhedrin. And it says, "But Jesus remained silent." like a lamb before its slaughterer is silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you, I command you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now that's not, that's not him going, I didn't say it, you said it. No, that's not what he's doing. He's saying yes. You've, what you've said is right. I am the Messiah, the Christ. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, what is that a reference to? Well, in uh, Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of God Almighty seated on his throne. And into the scene comes one like a son of man, one who looks like a man. And all the nations bow before and serve or worship the son of man. So when people say, well, I don't see the Trinity in the Old Testament, here you have a scene with God Almighty on the throne and a son of man, and 
the world is worshiping the Son of Man. And he comes into the picture on the clouds of glory. So Jesus, standing before his accusers, says, I'm that guy. And while you are making me grovel before you, one day you will bow before me. Roar. But what does he do? Does he, does he flex his lionly power? No. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him. Majesty in me. The unbelieving mind is going, I don't get this, this is disturbing. The person being drawn to the true God is going, he's a lion and a lamb. He's omnipotent and he's choosing to be powerless. What a God. So now... To make this official, this is the religious trial. Now they've got to bring him before the Roman authorities, and they bring him to Pilate, the governor. And Pilate can't get him to talk. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So now Pilate's getting frustrated, and he's going to do a power play on Jesus. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And what does Jesus the lion say? Jesus answered to him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You want to play the authority game, Mr. Pilate? Any authority you have comes from me. So, does he strike him dead? No, he allows Pilate to sentence him to be crucified like a lamb. One last thing. In John's Gospel, John begins telling us who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Who is Jesus? He's God. And Jesus, as God, is creator. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all the universe in its vastness was made by Jesus. Now, one thing Jesus made was water. All the water in the world he created by speaking it into existence. But now he's hanging on a cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. The creator who created it all is now dying of thirst. The lion is now lamb. And again, 
The unbelieving mind doesn't get this. The person being drawn to believe, and the believer says, what an awesome God. King of kings, Lord of lords, omnipotent, all-powerful, creator God, submitting to being spat upon and mocked and carrying his cross and being nailed to a cross and dying in agony to pay for our sins. He is both unapproachable and perfectly approachable. We don't approach him in our own authority. We approach him submitting to his mercy, covered with his blood that makes us acceptable before him. When uh, we were in Ireland, the first church uh, I preached in was a evangelical church. It, w- it was basically Valley Brook. Um, s- s- we stood and we sang songs for the first half, and then uh, they had PowerPoint, and I did the trick with the lock and the keys and explained the gospel. And It was just basically an evangelical church. Last Sunday, we were in um, a Presbyterian church, a little more formal. Right? Elizabeth was raised Presbyterian. And um, I didn't preach, but uh, we were part of the service. I did the, the rope trick about sin and so forth. And Elizabeth and her students uh, did children's church. Um, but one of the things they assigned me was a prayer of confession. And I'm like, what in the world is that? Um, and we hadn't met the pastor yet, so the night before, um, I googled Presbyterian Prayer of Confession, and I found this, and this is, this is what I, I led, uh, kind of started the service. They did welcome announcements, they did one song, and then uh, Prayer of Confession, which begins with the person praying, announcing this, the proof of God's amazing love is this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we have faith in him, we dare to approach God in confidence. Confident in God's grace, let us confess our sins before God and one another. In other words, the prayer of confession doesn't begin with we are miserable, horrible sinners. Oh, we get to that. But it begins with a reminder of his grace, of his crucifixion, of his mercy. Now, you've heard me say before, the law convicts, the gospel forgives. Okay? That doesn't necessarily mean you start every gospel presentation with nothing but law. Because, as the prodigal son knew, to repent, you need to have a safe father to repent to. So this prayer of confession begins with a reminder of the Lamb dying on the cross. And then the congregation can, uh, can pray this prayer together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name.
Now, don't worry, we're not going to become Presbyterians, okay? Um, but I did find that the liturgy sometimes, they've thought this through. Right? The grace of the Lamb is first. So we as sinners can come with confidence before His throne because He demonstrates His love in that He died. So why don't we end, rather than me praying for us, why don't we end with this prayer of confession? So join me when we get to the dark part. Can you see it in the back? Okay. The proof of God's amazing love is this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we have faith in Him, we dare to approach God in confidence. Confident in God's grace, let us confess our sins before God and one another. So join me. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against You in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And then it ends with this pronouncement. Hear the good news. Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has begun. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Christ Jesus you are forgiven. Thanks be to God. So let's have the worship team come up and have one final song emphasizing his lionness and his lambness.